If, if, if you've got a Bible and want to go there, we're going to be in John chapter 15 together this morning. We'll jump in quite quick. When I first became a Christian, I remember asking or someone asking the question at some point, can you be a Christian without going to church? Um, which, if nothing else, I hope after 10 weeks of looking at what the church is, you might be able to see that that question ex- reveals quite a shriveled view of what the church is meant to be. It's a bit like my kids coming up to me and saying, can I still be your son if I just keep myself to myself and stay in my room or a teenager? If I just live in my bedroom and never have dinner time and never talk to my siblings and never talk to you and mum, can I still be your son? You're like, well, yeah, but <laughs> what's wrong with us? <laughs> and sometimes when people say that about the church, can I be a Christian and do I have to go to church? Well, not really, but when you understand what the church is, you realize that it is bound up with God's purpose and plan for your life in following him. We've seen that the church is the bride of Christ last week. Now, arguably, God created everything he's created in order to make a bride for his son. The church is a family. The church has been, is the salt of the earth. It's the light of the world. It's a community of people empowered and motivated and baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a community of people who are guardians and upholders of the truth the gospel message of salvation, the good news message for the world. Well, today I want us to see that the church are branches on a vine, that we're connected to the source of all life itself, that is Jesus. We're going to read 17 verses together from John chapter 15, and then just walk through it and see what God has to say to us this morning from his word. Let's read together, John 15. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it may be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, we prepare our hearts to receive your word. God, we're not here to just listen to a talk. We're wanting to hear from heaven. I ask that you'd shape us individually, 
God, may you find us to be receptive people to your word. I pray that your words don't bounce off us like bullets off a rock, but instead change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about identity, icebergs, sinkholes, and storms this morning. Let's start with the first one, identity. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser or gardener. Jesus starts this sermon with a statement about identity. His, the Father's, and then us. And it always ought to and always does flow that way in that order. Much of modern society and culture tells you that in order to find your identity, you should look within yourself. You should look and discover what your deepest desires are and express them, and therein lies the key and the source to your identity. That's not true. Who you are has just as much to do with whose you are as anything else. Whether you're male or female, uh, what your cultural inheritance is, the nation you come from, the town you were born in, the city you live in, what your home life was like, who your friends are. All those things play a part in forming and shaping who you are. It's the same with us in God, our spiritual identity. And so Jesus starts by telling us where we've come from, whose we are, in order that we might then look at who we are. He starts by saying, he is the vine, he's the true vine. A vine is something that produces life, produces fruit. It is a source of joy, it's the source of wine. The Bible says that wine gladdens the hearts of men and God. And so taking this metaphor for himself, Jesus says that he is a life-giving joy-producing, fruit-producing source for us. That He's dependable as well. Vines take years to produce decent fruit, f- decent fruit enough to produce decent wine. It requires stability. When I first moved to Seaford six years ago, they were just bought and were developing the Rathfinney estate. And now you drive in and you see the, the vineyard, a glorious display of fruitfulness. It's going to be still some time before they start producing the kind of quantities of wine that they want to. It takes a long time. So Jesus saying he's the vine, saying, I'm stable, I'm dependable, I'm, de- I'm, I'm faithful. There's peace here. But he doesn't just say he's the vine, he says he's the true vine. What does that mean? Does it mean he's good? He's true, he's good? Well, to understand why Jesus would call himself the true vine, we need to understand the imagery of vine in the Bible generally. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 4 says this, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done? The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, are pictured as being a vineyard. A vineyard planted by God. A vineyard of people meant to produce fine and choice wine, able to bless and strengthen the nations. The people of God are meant to be a source of joy that gladdens the hearts of the world. But it didn't. Instead of righteousness, bloodshed. Instead of justice and outcry. So in saying he's the true vine, Jesus is here embodying the people of God in the Old Testament. He's taking this upon himself and saying, I am the true vine, the fruit-producing, fruit-bearing, righteousness, peace-bringing, start of a new people. That's what he's saying. I'm the true vine, and the Father is the gardener. 
The Father is the one who works to produce and bring out the best grapes and wine that he can. The Father's not trying to make life hard for the vines, but he does have in mind the whole garden and the whole vineyard of what he's doing. And the Son trusts the Father and responds to him. And then with those two in place, Jesus, the true vine, and the Father, then and only then does he come on to talk about who you and I are, who we are. He says, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. You are the branches, he says to them. So whatever your background, whatever your history, if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, the words of Jesus make you clean. Your identity is that you're clean. You're not diseased. You're not a bad branch destined to just be thrown away and burnt up and not produce anything. The reason that's who you are is because of whose you are. You're His. And His Word has made you clean. And several years ago, I went away for a weekend with some friends from my squash club on a squash tour of the north of France. How middle class does that sound? But we played squash and it was a lot of fun. But I think for a lot of the guys on the tour, their focus wasn't on the squash. It was on the fact that they were away from their wives and could just drink and engage in activities they wouldn't normally do at home. And I don't think I'm particularly easy to offend. Uh, I'm not particularly prudish. But after a weekend of this kind of male banter that was just rude and dirty a lot of the time, I found myself just feeling unclean. <laughs> just like, I just feel dirty. You know, we all know what it's like to be around people who leave that effect on you. You think, oh, there's just something vile about the conversation topic here. Conversely, we know what it's like to be around people who speak life and encouragement and joy. And you come away from being with them thinking, I feel clean. How much more so for the Son of God? He's addressing the disciples and saying, you're clean because of the words, the truth, the teaching I've given you. It cleans you. It's not just that you're clean. Your identity is also this. You're a branch. You think, well, that's not overly, that's not overly sexy. I want to be a little bit more than just a branch. I want to be a palm tree. I want to be a mighty oak. I want to be someone who's going to take the world by storm. I want to be someone like Winston Churchill that generations after me will come and sit in my chair because I'm impressive. Jesus says, you're the branch. You need to understand and be content with this. Your life and energy and joy and peace and righteousness comes not from you being impressive. Your cleanliness isn't from your own morality comes from the fact that you are in him, the true vine. Your identity is that you're attached to Jesus. Where he goes, you go. What his reputation is, is your reputation. In the New Testament, the, uh, the writer of much of the New Testament, a man named the Apostle Paul, his favorite term for describing what a Christian is, is to say that a follower of Jesus is someone who is in Christ. You've been clothed in, you've been attached to, you dwell in Christ. The word Christian means imitator of Jesus. But before you can be a Christian, an imitator of Jesus in the way that you live, you've got to first of all be in Christ. Because it's his life in you that enables you to, to live it out in the first place. How do you get in Christ? The process in the New Testament of the normal Christian birth is that to become in Christ requires repentance, requires faith, requires baptism. 
that repentance has become a technical term, but it essentially means to turn around. The image being that all of us, the human race, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. When we, when we repent, we turn around. We f- go in a different direction. We don't just turn around and then find ourselves wandering aimlessly again. We turn around and then put our trust in something, someone else. The human race, in going astray, has really put its faith in itself. Your own ability to sort out your messes. You're the captain of your own soul. To repent means to turn around, to stop living like that, and instead to put your faith in Jesus. And that faith expresses itself. Your religion, someone said, is basically how you behave. What You can tell me all kinds of things about what you believe, but if I really want to know what you believe, I look at how you live. Because the clearest and easiest way to work out what someone believes is to, is to look at their life and see how they behave. The Christian, someone who said, I repent and put my trust in Jesus, and how do you know I've done that? I get baptized. It's almost the, one of the first things I ought to do is a demonstration I'm his. Because baptism is a death. And it's a resurrection. It's a repentance. And it's a putting our faith in for a new life. So baptism joins us to Jesus in that process. What comes first is repentance and faith. And then baptism is the outward expression. So Paul says to be a Christian is to be in Christ. Your identity is that you're clean. Your identity is that you're a branch. And now on to icebergs. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. The nature of a church, the nature of the Christian life in general, ought to live with those words resounding and echoing in its psyche the whole time. You can do nothing apart from me. Your entire life is dependent upon him. Any fruit that you hope to produce with your life comes simply by virtue of the fact that you are in him. So therefore, Jesus says, abide in me. That is your goal. That is your purpose. The writer Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Ordering Your Private World, he says this about the essential nature of what we're doing. Uh, he, he met, uh, I'll read this to you. He says, a, a man who, who claimed to be a Christian for 10 years uh, recently joined me at the sidelines of a soccer game where our sons were playing. At halftime, we took a stroll and we inquired about one another. I asked him one of those questions that Christians ought to ask each other from time to time without feeling odd. I said to him, tell me how you're doing spiritually. And he responded, interesting question. What's a good answer? Oh, I'm okay, he said, I guess. I wish I could say I was growing or feeling closer to God, but the truth is I'm sort of standing still. I don't think I, he says, I don't think I was out of line in pursuing the matter because he gave me the impression he was genuinely interested. So I said to him, are you taking regular time to order your inner life? He looked at me inquisitively. If I'd have said, how's your quiet time? He would have known exactly how to answer. That would have been measurable. And he could have responded in terms of days, hours and minutes, systems and techniques. But I had asked about the order of his inner life. And the key word is order, a word of quality, not quantity. When he sensed that he showed a little discomfort, he said to me, when does a man ever get to order his inner life? I've got work piled up to keep me going for the rest of the year. I'm out every night of the week. My wife is after me to take a week's holiday. The house needs painting. 
There's not too much time to think about ordering the inner life, as you put it. He paused for a moment and then asked, what is the inner life anyway? Suddenly I became aware that he was a professing Christian who had moved for years in Christian circles, who had gained a Christian reputation for doing Christian things, but had never realized that underneath all the action and well-meaning noise, there has got to be something solid, something dependable, that he saw himself too busy to maintain an inner world and that he was not even sure what one it was anyway tells me that he may have missed by a significant distance the central point of a life in touch with God. We had a lot to talk about. Our world does not help us order an inner life. It does not help you abide in Christ, does it? Our world is very good at helping you to chop and change and flip from one thing to the next. I know when I first became a believer, my family who aren't Christians weren't too concerned because they thought, well, Jez is into fads. This is the next fad. It's just a fad that's lasted several years now. They're a little bit concerned. I spoke to someone several months ago and they said to me, do you know what the biggest threat to the church globally is? The biggest threat certainly to the church in the West He said, it's this, your smartphone. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear fruit. Abide in me, your phone says, and I'll offer you access to instant gratification. Abide in me and you'll discover knowledge beyond your wildest dreams. Abide in me and you'll never never need to feel bored or alone again. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear fruit. Fruit that will last. What fruit, Jesus? Well, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Abide in me and you'll become more loving, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more generous, more joyful. You'll have more self-control if you abide in me. Abide in me, the phone says. And instead of getting what the phone, our smartphones promise us, that we become distracted. Abide in me and you'll become anxious You'll see an increasing rate in the rising levels of depression in your societies. Abide in me and you'll find yourself to be more stressful. Abide in me and you'll forever be dissatisfied by the illusion of connectedness with other people. Abide in me and you'll only ever feel an increasing sense of a void in your soul. The biggest danger to the Christian life is probably this. I'll be honest, I wake up in the morning... What's the first thing I do before I reach for my Bible or get on my knees and pray? Check my phone. See what's gone on overnight. It's dangerous. It doesn't produce lasting fruit in our lives. So what does it look like to abide? Well, to abide looks like remembering Betty Zane. Betty Zane was a woman, a uh, daughter of a commander of a fortress in the American Civil War. And on one occasion, when there was a particularly fierce battle running, raging, they were, run, they were running low on their stocks of gunpowder in the fortress, and they knew in any moment they were going to be overrun by the British. And so, Betty Zane climbed over the walls of the fortress, ran in front of the enemy line to get to a cache of gunpowder, got as much as she could, and went back to the fortress in, in order to keep the cannons blasting against the British. And the British reverted. The victory was won in the Civil War. To remember Betty Zane means to run regularly for gunpowder, for sources of strength and ammunition. To abide in Jesus is to realize your ultimate need 
for him to supply what you're lacking, to give you the strength and the spiritual muscle and the source of identity and connectedness and peace and joy in order to keep you firing in life. Order your private world. A friend of mine said that uh, a couple of weeks ago they were watching Country File. Um, and they said that an oak tree in any given day draws from the ground 20 liters of water. 20 liters of water to keep it going. My friend said the reason his grass was so barren and dry and dusty, he was told, was because of this oak tree in his garden. It's just sucking all the moisture out of the ground. How much moisture do you need to sustain your current Christian life? Well, it depends. If you want to be a little sapling, a little daisy, a little weed in the flower bed, you need very little. You can get by with the occasional sermon, the occasional God bless mommy, daddy, Christopher Robin type prayer. But if you want to grow, if you want to abide, if you want to bear fruit, 20 liters of water a day for an oak tree. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear much fruit. And that's where we come to icebergs. It's often said and pointed out, isn't it, that icebergs are any public, uh, what you see above the iceberg is just the tip. There's a whole foundation underneath. It's true that any public and outward display in your Christian life ought to be rooted in and deeply, uh, deeply grounded in an anchor that's submerged under the surface. That the Christian life is best lived in secret. You want to grow, you've got to put your roots into Him. You've got to abide. Last summer I was at a, a youth festival and there was a well-known speaker there that I was excited to hear preach. And he preached his message, and it was inspirational and moving. And uh, people were affected and changed. But you know what? Nine months on from hearing that message, I can't remember a lot of what he said. But I can remember his manner. I can remember his character, the impression that it left on my soul. They say, don't they, who you are speaks louder than what you say. And it does. And this man's humility and devotion to God in prayer has left an abiding mark on my soul more than any of his messages would ever do. If you want to be a good dad, if you want to be a good friend, if you want to be a good wife or mum or employee, you want to be a good boss, you've got to learn to abide in him, who you are speaks far louder than what you say. I was discussing with a friend the other day um, about that there's a proverb, a statement in the Bible that says a wise man leaves an inheritance for his kids. And he jokingly said, I don't think we had many wise men in my family because there's not much inheritance for me. Uh, but then as we talked, he realized, you know what, the inheritance I've got most of all though is from my mum. She prayed. She loved God. She prayed for us and our siblings all the time. And I'm reaping the benefits of that inheritance. What's the inheritance you want to leave to people? It'd be nice to leave both. I get that. And a wise man or woman would aim to leave both. But if you had to choose, for a lot of people, to move around in different countries and reestablish themselves at different parts in their life, who you are is a far greater inheritance to leave your children than anything you say or any money you can give them. We need to learn to be icebergs 
Next, let's come to this, sinkholes. Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus offers his disciples a warning and a promise. The warning, though the promise is that those who abide will bear fruit. The warning is that those who don't bear fruit are never part of the vine in the first place. And sometimes people read this and they worry and they think, does that mean I'm going to be cut off from the vine? To which the answer is, well, are you bearing fruit? Are you abiding in the vine? If you're not, where's your confidence coming from? Can you read that and say, I'm, I'm safe, I'm fine. Jesus doesn't want us to live like that. Instead, he wants to say, listen, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Beware of becoming a sinkhole. You might be someone who looks like you've got it all together on the surface. You're very busy, very involved maybe in church. Maybe you've become used to speaking Christian parlance. You can quote chapter and verse. But what's underneath? You know, um, we've got some pictures of sinkholes. And we, we all, from time to time, you hear it on the news, some sinkholes that open up. And terrifying concept, really. That you can be walking along at any given moment, the ground that you're on can just give way to this mass. I mean, look at the size of that. That's terrifying. You can't even see the bottom. It's not worth thinking about. The idea that the, the ground you're seated on right now might not, at any moment, it might just give way. It's a terrifying reality. Truth is, that happens with people's lives all the time. I, uh, I went to have an evening with Raynal Fines, the British um, Arctic explorer, polar explorer, a couple of months ago. And um, I've read several books now about Antarctic exploration, just to remind me of the calling I haven't got. <laughs> I would never go there. Um, but they say one of the most terrifying things of exploring in the Antarctic is you never know when the ground beneath you is going to give way. And there's a massive fissure or sinkhole opens up and there's been dozens and dozens of lives lost in the Antarctic as they've been sledging along and suddenly a chasm opens up and they plummet to their death. Terrifying. Gordon MacDonald again, speaking about this reality, he says this, I believe that one of the great battlefields of our age is the private world of the individual. There, are, there is a contest that must be fought, particularly by those who call themselves practicing Christians. Among them are those who work hard, shouldering massive responsibilities at home, at work, and at church. They're good people, but they are very, very tired. And thus, they are too often live on the verge of a sinkhole-like collapse. Why? Because they become too public-world-oriented, ignoring the private side until it's almost too late. He goes on to say, our Western cultural values have helped to blind us to this tendency. We're naively inclined to believing that the most publicly active person is also the most privately spiritual. You know, we are in an age that more than any other is obsessed with personality. The personality cult is alive and well, especially, unfortunately, in the church. If you've got, you know, the whitest teeth and the most glamorous backdrop and the biggest band, People don't care what your character's like as long as you can speak in platitudes and rhymes and give me something to put on my fridge when I go home. I've seen this countless times, not so much in, in England, I suppose, but in the States where there's a tendency for these mega church pastors to become huge. And I've fallen, I've fallen uh, what's the phrase? 
I've got wounded by it in the past. Someone's on stage, someone's speaking a good word, so I'll trust them. And then a sinkhole opens up in their life and you realize, huh, there wasn't much character there after all. Fred Mitchell, a, uh, a leader in world missions, used to have a motto on his desk. said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Beware the barrenness of a busy life. It's possible. You know it as well as I do. I know how hard many of you work trying to keep plates spinning, trying to serve God and be a good wife or a husband and be a good dad. The pressures that are on us. And then on top of it, we had a smartphone that's constantly reminding us of uh, seemingly urgent messages to reply to. And what happens is time is, is little by little, the ground beneath the surface becomes less and less stable and a sinkhole can open up. Beware. We must be those who order our private life. So that's identity. It's icebergs, it's sinkhole, and lastly, storms. We won't read the rest, but in summary, Jesus says, doesn't he, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He wants it, your good. He's got your good in mind. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The church is the people who obey Jesus and who love one another. He said often in this passage, abide in my love. And here he gives us quite a clear definition of what abiding looks like. Abiding looks like obeying Jesus' teaching. That's how you ensure that a sinkhole is not about to open up. You obey Jesus. But it also looks like this. Loving one another. In case he's not clear enough. Obey my teaching. Okay, what does that look like? Love one another. Serve one another. He's talking to his disciples. He's saying the community of believers that is the blueprint of the church ought to be a people who love and serve one another, who choose to do it. It's an action. He's not saying, be best friends with everyone in the church. <laughs> he knows he's talking to a group of fallen men and women whose lives are chaotic at best. We live between crises a lot of the time. You know, friendship in the church is worth commenting on this. Friendship, deep spiritual friendships with one another in the church is a beautiful thing. Something to pray for. Something to seek after. But Jesus says to his followers, I've called you friends. You're my friend. Now you love one another. It's not the case that in every community of believers on the planet, you'll find a soulmate friend. But it is the case in every community of believers that you'll be able to practice Jesus' command, love one another, serve one another. Be willing to inconvenience yourself for others. Give your time, your energy, and effort to each other. All of us are just branches working for one another's good to show off the life-producing nature of the vine that we're attached to. And if you find it difficult, if you find yourself in a group or a church where you find that people are very hard to love, all the better for you. Think of what God can do in your character as you love anyway. Jesus is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. He wants you to bear fruit. Fruit that will last into eternity. 
fruit that looks like joy, peace, love, patience, all of those things that we desire, and that's often produced better in storms than it is in anything else. In the Gospels, there's a story of Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee when a storm breaks up and the waves start crashing over the side of the boat and the disciples start freaking out. And what's Jesus doing in that moment? He's asleep. He's having a nap. Disciples wake him up and say, don't you care, we're going to drown. And Jesus rebukes the waves, tells them to calm down. And he rebukes the disciples and tells them to calm down. And then goes back to sleep. No, we don't know if he does. But he says to his disciples, doesn't he? He says in that moment, you remember what he says? Where's your faith? To which we read and say, oh, that's harsh. They've got faith, Jesus. They're following you. But Jesus says, where's your faith? Like, you've got it, but what are you doing with it? It's in the times of crisis that your faith is meant to be the thing that gives you courage and confidence when you need it most of all. I remember a friend several years ago, his wife got diagnosed with a very serious illness and it, it looked like she was going to die. And she was a, a woman in her 20s. They had two young children. I said to the husband, I said, how are you doing? And he said, it's the times like this that's what my faith is for, isn't it? It's all right to have faith in the harbor, but you really need it when you're in the storms. The trouble is you can't learn to sail the basics. You can't get the basics of sailing in a storm. You'll die. The harbor's where you get the basics, and the storms are where you become good sailors. And it's the same in our Christian life. As you abide in Jesus daily, as you develop disciplines and routines in your life that help you to avoid the sinkhole phenomenon, what it does is it prepares you to face the storms. My experience of this is that early into my Christian life, someone told me, I can't remember now, someone told me, every day, start your day by reading something from the Bible and praying. What they're saying is learn to abide in Jesus every day. And so for the first decade of my Christian life, I was learning to get that discipline in place. Then a catastrophe happened in my life when my dad got diagnosed with a serious illness that he went on to die from. What I found in that time of processing the diagnosis and preparing myself for my dad's death, what I found was that there were times where I didn't know which way was up. I didn't know how to pray, but I had a discipline. And every day I would just find myself sitting down at my desk, reading the Bible, trying to pray because that was my habit. And it was that habit that enabled me to keep my fingertips attached to Jesus in those times. Or it, it was that habit that enabled the life of God to remain giving me strength and sustenance in what was a difficult time. I used to say that this discipline was like, um, you know those old fairy stories where where kids would walk through the woods and they would tie some string or they would kind of leave string to stop themselves getting lost. And then if they found themselves lost and in the woods, the string would help them find their way back. Discipline's like that. Abiding in Jesus is like that, that when the storms hit, you've got a string and it gets you home. It keeps you safe. There's a story that's told about um, a captain of a nuclear submarine who was off duty but on the sub and the submarine was rocking about so much one day, there was 
some kind of crisis going on that they were needing to steer through some choppy waters and avoid some different obstacles and ships out at sea. The, the, the sub was moving so much that the captain woke up, was thrown out of his bunk, came up to the bridge because he thought, I, know I don't need to check the engine, I need to check the bridge, find out what's going on in the bridge. He went into the bridge and saw his first mate there and he said to him, is everything in order? What's going on? And the first mate said, everything's in order. And the captain said, it looks like it is too and went back to bed. He knew that the drills that they'd put in place during the calm times, that they'd gone over dozens and dozens of times, those drills were being kept to. So that in this difficult time, the captain could say, I'm sure we'll be fine. They weren't through the trouble, but he could go back to bed knowing the bridge have got it under control. Ordering your private world, learning to abide in Christ is like that. So that when trouble comes, a friend can say to you, is everything in order? You say, it's in order. I've got my friends. They're praying for me. As a church, we're abiding in Christ. No amount of setbacks and difficulties are going to stop us from moving forward into what God's called us to. Identity, icebergs, sinkholes, and storms. The church is a group of people whose identity is rooted in Christ. That we're branches, we're clean, we're in Him. That identity means that we're able to be like icebergs with our life hidden, in Christ, hidden with Christ in God, which avoids sinkholes, which enables us to endure through storms. That's who we are, that's whose we are, and that's what we're for, church. That's what God has called you to. A life of learning to abide and rest in Jesus Christ. 